0: Well, a happy Mother's Day to you all, from our house to yours. Uh, Why don't we pause for prayer before we dig into God's Word together. Lord, we bow before you now. We thank you for the special blessing of moms and stepmoms and grandmoms that are even with us today. I pray that the women in our congregation would rise up as women of great faith, like Ruth and Deborah and Esther in the Bible, experiencing the gifts of your Holy Spirit. May you find them to be women of good reputation above reproach and honorable. Also, today we remember those who may want to be mothers but who have not had their prayers answered. Uh, For those who may wrestle with infertility, today can be a painful reminder of unfulfilled longings, longings that are good. And so we pray for comfort during this time, and if it be your will, we pray for God's gift of children to be given for them, either through natural means or through adoption, whichever you, Lord, should desire. And now, for the moms here, we thank you for them. We're reminded that you tell us charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. And so we ask your blessing upon their homes, that everything they put their hands to would be prosperous and successful. For our time in your word now, would you make it rich and make it real? Open up eyes, open up ears, and most of all, open up hearts that we might hear from you today. For Christ's sake, for his reputation, we pray. Amen. Well, I am raising three girls, and so in our household, we watch a lot of Disney movies. So we've seen them all, I think, Lion King, Mulan. Of course, there's, you know, Go Back to Finding Nemo, uh, all the classics. But I think my favorite one uh, is a throwback called Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid is a a classic, and here's what's interesting to me about Little Mermaid. You might remember that uh, Ariel and her friend Scuttle have collected an assortment of land-based items, uh, but they don't know what they are. And so they call them names like uh, thingamabobs and other things because they don't know what else to call them and they don't know what they're supposed to be doing with them. Uh, for example, a fork, as you see on the screen, they call a dingle dinglehopper uh, and they think that it's a hairbrush. When you don't know what something is and you don't know what to call it, it's kind of hard uh, to know what you're supposed to do with it. Sometimes, friends, it can be like that in the church. We live down here in the realm below, but yet we've been given access to a few heavenly things from above, and we've been placed in charge of those things and given a heavenly assignment, but sometimes we, like Ariel and Scuttle, don't exactly know how those things are supposed to work, and we don't exactly know what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, Tim Savage, in his excellent little book on the church called The Church, God's New People, recounts the following conversation he had with famous theologian John Stott. He was picking up Stott to take him to his speaking engagement, and he asked him some questions like you see on the screen. He said, I decided to ask him, what's the most neglected doctrine among contemporary Christians, in your opinion? Now think about that question. What's the most neglected doctrine among contemporary Christians? And he said, I thought that Stott might say something like uh, the doctrine of theology, the study of God, our God is too small, or maybe the doctrine of soteriology, that our salvation system is too reliant on man, or something like that. But without hesitation, he said, John Stott said, without flinching, ecclesiology, the study of the church. Savage said, when he said that, I couldn't quite understand what he meant. He said, that seems peripheral compared to some of the other major doctrines that we study in theology. But in years since, Savage says, I've come to see that I was wrong and view things otherwise. The church of Jesus Christ is the locus or the center of God's plan for creation. Now, isn't that something and perhaps ironic? It's ironic, is it not, that most churches are weak in their understanding of themselves. That's what this series is all about. Uh, We're continuing in this vision series called Expanding the Table for the Glory of God, and we've moved to talk about our core values, and we're asking that question. Who are we? What are we as a church? And what do we value here? Over the last few months, the staff and the elders have sat down and hammered out a set of core values, and I'll put them up on the screen just for you to see them. Uh, We said we want to be a church who has a passion for the mission locally and globally, we want to be a church who's both biblically grounded and culturally relevant. Uh, we want to be a church who's gospel-centered in everything we do. We want to be a church who has intentional spiritual formation. We want to be developing godly servant leaders, building strong families, and living in authentic community. Man, that's an exciting list. Now, is that going to be easy? No. Is it worthwhile? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this is our vision, these are our values. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list of everything we value, but this is what we said as elders we want to lift up in the next three to five years here at NBC. And today I want to talk about that second one. We want to be both biblically grounded and culturally relevant. Both biblically grounded and culturally relevant. And the key word I want you to notice there is the word and. Because it's not that easy to be both. We see these things as at least in competition with one another, don't we? One of my favorite profs, Howard Hendricks, used to say it this way, it's not actually that difficult to be biblical if you don't care about being relevant. And it's not actually that difficult to be relevant if you don't care about being biblical. But if you want to be both biblical and relevant in your teaching, well, that is a difficult task indeed. That, brothers and sisters, is the task that we have before us as a church. We want to be men like the tribe of, like from the tribe of Issachar who, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. We want to be those who understand the times but also know what we should do. Now, how do we do that? That's a good question. Well, first, let's talk about how we wouldn't want to do that. Let me just give you three temptations to avoid when it comes to the relationship between the church and the culture. Now, the first thing we should avoid is compromise, compromising the message. We have to be very careful. Some churches, in an effort to be relevant, compromise the message to grow. That would be a bad strategy. Uh, Watering down the gospel or preaching a false gospel to attract people uh, may provide us with a little bit of short-term growth, but it won't be healthy long-term for the body. I remember Lyle Alzado In the NFL, when he took steroids, yes, he did experience some physical growth, some muscle mass growth, uh, but he also died nine years later. And so we want to be careful about the strategies that we employ uh, to maximize growth. If God wants to grow our church, then we must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And if he wants to grow our church, so that's up to him. The growth of the church is really in the hands of the Lord. The growth is not the objective, by the way. The objective is church health and healthy churches Grow. That's why our logo there on the screen is a tree, because that's what we want to be about. A healthy, vibrant, living church. Now, just like the health of my children is in the hands of the Lord, and as a parent, while I rest in God's sovereign will, for the health of my children... I also engage in those means that God has given me to address the health of my children so that I make sure that they're well-fed and I make sure that they're exercised and make sure that they're well-rested in order that they might grow. Well, the same principle would apply to a church, right? While the growth of the church is in the hands of the Lord, we also, as a church, must engage in those means that God has given us to address the health of the church, and we will do that without compromise. The second temptation we should avoid in our strategy to reach the culture, is the strategy of withdrawal. Uh, This is the inclination to keep the church totally separate from the culture, uh, sacred and secular, just keep the two apart. Not a good idea. This is the idea that that people say, well, listen, it's not really the job of Christians to to mend the world. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. We don't really care about it anyway. Just leave us alone. We're gonna do our thing. Uh, Build some bomb shelters, get some canned goods, and wait for the rapture. That leads to kind of an escapism that I think is too extreme as well. God calls us to be on mission, to be salt and to be light in this world and to engage those with the gospel around us and reach our culture. And no culture is too difficult for God to reach, even ours. I would recommend a book to you called Onward by Russell Moore, subtitled Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. In that book, he says this, "...the shaking of American culture is no sign that God has given up on American Christianity." In fact, it may be a sign that God is rescuing American Christianity from itself. Think about that. We don't want to follow the strategy of withdrawal. The third temptation I think is also equally dangerous is what I'm going to call triumphalism. This is the idea that Christians ought to take power and forcefully make society the way it should be. This is the idea that we should take back the culture and shake our fists to almost kind of create a theocracy here. Well, the problem with this view is that it begins to view everything in terms of a culture war. And it views those who are actually seeking to win as our enemies who we despise. That's not good. We aren't supposed to view ourselves at war with unbelievers because our end goal was never supposed to be to win politically or culturally. Our end goal is the goal of reconciliation and winning people to Christ. That's the goal. Friends, our real enemies are not those with whom we politically disagree or even those on the other side of the culture war. That is the mission field. They are actually prisoners of war, of the enemy Satan himself, and we are seeking not to defeat them, but to rescue them. And the weapons we use are not weapons of power. They are weapons of humility and self-sacrifice and weakness following in the footsteps of our Lord. Moore makes this point in that same book. He said this, quote, We need to begin to see even our most passionate critic Not as an argument to be vaporized, but as a neighbor to be evangelized. Now that's a heart check there. And so we believe those methods are extreme, not the right way to go. The right way to go is this fourth option here, which we'll just call engagement. Engaging the culture with the gospel for the sake of cultural renewal and transformation. This is what Pastor Bob was talking about a little bit last week. Seeking the welfare of the city to which God has placed you. Here's what I'm saying. You and I have been placed here in this time of history, as Esther says, for such a time as this. And we have the opportunity to engage our culture with the truth of the gospel. And it's a very unique and exciting time to do so. In other words, yes, uh, we are watching the Bible Belt uh, kind of collapse Uh, Yes, there is this rise of the nuns and people who check no religious affiliation in our country. Yes, there's times where we feel like in the culture war we're kind of losing. And yes, the moral majority is probably a lot smaller than it used to be. But I can just tell you, I used to live in the buckle of the Bible Belt, Dallas, Texas, for eight years. And I can tell you largely what that was was a community of people who were engaged with cultural, superficial Christianity, uh, not so much engaged with a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so, as Russell Moore says later in that book, as far as the moral majority, uh, we're probably going to be better off functioning as we have in ages past, as a prophetic minority instead. Throughout church history, that's where we function best anyway. Just in case you think that task is completely overwhelming, disturbing, unrealistic, and too daunting, let me just remind you that that's actually nothing new. Let me remind you of how the first century church found themselves in the middle of the Roman Empire. And within not very long amount of time, they turned the whole world upside down. Now, how do we do that? We don't do that by pointing backwards and longing for the good old days of American Christianity in the 1950s. Instead, we point forward as aliens and strangers in this world who are looking for a city not built by human hands whose builder and maker is God. That's the message we have for our culture. How do we do that? Well, let me turn your attention to this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the context here is this is Paul's last letter that he will ever write. These are the last words we ever get to read from his pen. It's not often the case where you hear words of farewell from someone like this when someone knows and recognizes this is going to be their last opportunity to speak. But occasionally it does happen, and and when it does happen, the speaker is usually not frivolous with their words or their message. They talk about important things, things that matter. I'm reminded of the farewell sermon of a man named Greg Bonson. Dr. Bonson was a champion of the faith back in the 80s and 90s, but he had diabetes and that resulted in some damage to his heart. And he was going in for this third heart operation and he knew the chances were not very good that he was going to come through. And so on the Lord's Day in 1995, he preached his final sermon to that church. And it's, it's pretty unusual where someone gets to preach their own funeral sermon, but that's what he got to do. And I can assure you that those who were there in the room would testify that that was not your standard sermon. There was something special about it. When your pastor thinks he's not going to make it through the end of the week, that kind of changes the tone and stuff. And so here we have Paul saying, the time of my departure is near. And I don't know exactly when all that's going to happen, Timothy, but I I want you to listen to some things that I have to tell you that are very, very, very important while the culture around you is doing its own thing, I have a different plan for you. And here's what he says, starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil men and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let's pause there. So Here Paul has come and sat down with his young protege, Timothy, here. And he says, "Timothy, Timothy, I've got a reality I want to share with you. I've got a reality I want to put in your face. And the reality is that things are not going to get better around you. Things are going to go from bad to worse. These will be terrible times. But Timothy, I want to give you a response. An obligation for you to fulfill, if you will. And the obligation is to continue in my teaching because terrible times require trustworthy teaching. And also, I want you to follow my example in conduct, in life, and in love toward those around you. That's your calling. See, if we're going to be both biblically relevant and biblically grounded and culturally relevant, then we need to live with Christian distinctiveness. We need to live with Christian distinctiveness, meaning we must be intentionally walking out the implications of the gospel in every arena, every role in our lives, at home, at church, at work, everywhere, because the gospel actually does affect everything. This shows up through thoughtfulness in my words and deeds, which are the fruit of a heart changed by the grace of God in Christ. Pastor Bob's going to talk a lot more about being gospel-centered in the future of this series, but one example of how to do this is just simply living out your Christian ethics with a faithful presence at your workplace. I heard a story about a TV businesswoman in New York City a few years back, and she said that she'd been in the TV business for many years, and uh, this particular moment in her life, she had, been, she had made a mistake. And her boss actually took the blame for the mistake that she made. Saying, oh, you know, my fault. I didn't train her right and so forth. Well, she was so astounded by that. She said, you know, I've been in TV business for many years. Many times my superiors have taken credit for what I've done properly. But no one has ever taken the blame for something that I did wrong. Why would you do that? Why? And she pressed him. And he said, I'm only answering this question because you're really pushing me here. But the reason I'm doing this is because I'm a Christian. And my entire life, my entire worldview, my entire belief system is entirely based on someone who took the blame for me. And I seek to pattern my life after him. And she goes, where do you go to church? What's the point? When we live with Christian distinctiveness, the gospel shapes our hearts, changes our lives, and creates culturally engaged Christians that will have an impact on the world around us. Here's the hard part about being both biblically grounded and culturally relevant. If you are going to make an impact on your community, if we are, then we must be separate from sin, but never separate from sinners. See, too often we do exactly the reverse. We separate ourselves from sinners, but we are infected with sin, We're fearful of being seen with our Muslim neighbor or our gay neighbor or our atheist friend because we're afraid that people will say, well, the fact that you're getting together and hanging out is kind of scandalous. But yet within our own churches, we're shot through with pornography and quarrelsomeness and untold greed and laziness. The opposite should be the case. We rail against the culture and then speak in ambiguous tones about what's going on right inside of our own households. Brothers and sisters, that ought not be the way it is. Here, Paul tells Timothy, you've seen my conduct. You've seen the way I live, my faith, my love. Let your conduct be becoming of a follower of Jesus. Live your whole life with patience and love and steadfastness to Christ and Christian distinctiveness. Then he goes on to say in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pause there. You see what he's saying? Timothy, you need to maintain yourself as a man of doctrinal conviction, whose convictions are informed by the inspired scriptures and which teaching has been passed down to you by myself, and listen, moms, by your mother, and by your grandmother because the scripture which has informed them and us and you is not man made it is god breathed and so when you're standing on these scriptures Timothy you're not just standing on the convictions of myself or your mother or your grandmother you're standing on the convictions of god almighty himself Here's the second point. If we want to be both biblically grounded and culturally relevant, we must preserve biblical authority. Just listen to a few verses from the Bible about the Bible. The Bible says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The Bible says, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Hebrews chapter 4 declares, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God says, my word will never return void. So here's what that means for us as a church. Here at MBC, we seek to preserve our commitment to the belief that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Every single word word of it. And that affects everything we do here. That affects... Every ministry in every area. That means how we serve in the kids area, the youth program, small groups, how we do discipleship, how we engage our mission, how we worship, how we practice hospitality, how we preach from this pulpit right here. Every area of our church is grounded in and submitted to biblical authority. Now, here's why this value is so difficult. You say that kind of thing in church here, you might get an amen. You say that thing out there, people will think you're absolutely crazy. It used to be for a while the mainstream culture in our country didn't necessarily love the evangelical church, but they were not really against it. They were more apathetic. But we are living in a different time where there is an outright antagonism towards Christianity. You believe the Bible? You are extreme. You're a nut. The late Christopher Hitchens, an outspoken atheist, said it this way in his famous book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. We are not bound by any of it, the Bible, because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. I'm feeling the love there, Christopher. (laughs) In the age of tolerance and respect and safe spaces and microaggressions, suddenly when it comes to the Bible or Christians, all of those rules go away, I guess. But notice how patronizing... uh, Some of these writers are... Notice the presence of what C.S. Lewis used to call chronological snobbery. It's the idea of looking down on those from previous moments of history as if we're superior now. It's actually a very arrogant position to take. Listen to another quote from outspoken atheist Sam Harris. who says it like this. It is time we admitted from kings and presidents on down that there is no evidence that any of our books was authored by the creator of the universe... The Bible, it seems certain, was the work of sand-strewn men and women who thought the earth was flat and for whom a wheelbarrow would have been a breathtaking example of emerging technology. This is kind of the way uh, we're getting spoken against. Very condescending. And here's my main problem with the new atheists. Although there's a lot of intelligence coming out of their books, uh, it seems like they're saying not just that religion is wrong, it seems like they're now saying that even respect for religion is wrong. And when you teach disrespect for billions and billions of people on this planet, I can't see how anything good would come out of that mindset. And they're not just saying our faith is like regressive, they're saying it's dangerous, they're saying it's harmful. It's not just that they find the idea of the Bible or God or Jesus or miracles or angels or demons incredible or embarrassing or unscientific, they find them to be a threat to the greater cultural good. For example, look at this quote from Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. Do those people who hold up the Bible as an inspiration to moral rectitude have the slightest notion of what is actually written in it? Now, if you read these guys and this is your view, let me just challenge you a little bit. In order to judge the Bible or the morality of the Bible, uh, these guys seem to be appealing to some sort of standard from which they're criticizing the Bible, right? But at the same time, it also seems to me that they have actually left any objective moral standard in their worldview, because all they now have are just personal preferences and opinions. This is, I mean, this is just Dawkins' opinion, right? You don't like the God of the Bible, okay, okay? That's not like right or wrong. That's just your preference. I mean, what standard are you appealing to if you're a materialistic naturalist like this guy? Well, how can you criticize somebody else's morality? The only morality that really would ever come from that worldview is the survival of the fittest, the strong eat the weak. Where do you get morality from that worldview? And so you see that there's problems with the cultural consensus here. Ravi Zacharias does a great job of criticizing this irrational response when he says this when you say there's such a thing as evil um, Well Just listen to me and then then I'll read the quote on the screen when you say there's such a thing as evil You must assume there's such a thing as good When you say there's such a thing as good you must assume there's such a thing as a moral law To differentiate between good and evil when you say there's such a thing as a moral law You must assume that there's such a thing as a moral law giver But that's exactly who the anti-theists are trying to disprove And he goes on to say what you see on the screen. If there is no moral law giver, then there is no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, then there's no evil. And the question actually self-destructs. You see, when we engage our culture with the Christian worldview, we actually can show that we do have some timeless principles and answers to these big questions of life. Answers that are ultimately, I think, a lot more satisfying than, than what other worldviews have to offer. Because these answers are the answers of God Almighty, and we find them in his word. So here Paul is saying, Timothy, when you go back to the inspired, God-breathed scriptures, you are not just reading words of wisdom there, or good advice. I want you to know that when you read them, God is speaking through them, through the Holy Spirit, such that when you reject the Scriptures, you are not just rejecting someone's opinion, you are rejecting Jesus Christ himself. This is a claim to authority. And today, all around us, that authority is contested. Which is not just happening as a debate externally, but also internally. There are revisionists who would say, that we need to reinterpret what the scripture says about, for example, one hot-button issue in our culture right now is the the Christian sexual ethic. But it's not just that there's a debate about interpretation, like other matters which are more disputable, such as the mode of baptism or what kind of church government you want to have or, or charismatic gifts still for today. Those kind of debates can happen. But the debate that is going on here is saying, no... The Apostle Paul was wrong on issues of sexuality, about sexual orientation, about gender. We can correct the record now because we have information now that was inaccessible to those in the first century world. See, one revisionist author even goes on to say that Jesus himself in Matthew 19, when he defined marriage as a union of a male and a female, that's a lifelong commitment, Uh, He said, Jesus did not know then what we know now. (laughs) Russell Moore responded to that this way. Friends, it takes quite a Messiah complex to correct the actual Messiah. (laughs) (laughs) For not knowing what we know now and still... Here's what I'm saying. To those who would say the church has been wrong for 2,000 years... They're not dealing in matters of interpretation. They are making a claim to authority. Based on the spirit of this age and scientific insights of research, which contests the authority for those who claim to be speaking with the authority of the Spirit of God. That's a serious claim. So, if we, as aliens and strangers are going to be a people who are both biblically grounded and culturally relevant, Then we're going to have to learn to engage these issues with those in our culture. Here's the problem today, though. The challenge is we need to be so immersed in the Scripture that we're ready for challenges that we haven't even thought about yet, for situations we do not yet face. But the problem is we're also living in a day and age where although the Bible is very accessible, Biblical illiteracy is actually at an all-time high. The church really, largely, many of us don't know the Bible. Consider Jesus when he did battle with the enemy in the wilderness. He was so saturated with the word of God that he knew what God said to prepare him for each new temptation before it came. Brothers and sisters, if that's how Jesus lived then ought we also, all the much more, live in a way that is saturated with the Scriptures. You need to know the Bible. You need to know the Old Testament. You need the book of Obadiah. You need to know the New Testament. You need to know the Scriptures. Because without that knowledge, we will be worthless and woefully inadequate for the monumental task that's in front of us. Because if you know the Scriptures, then when the ground is shaking all around you, You will be able to find your grounding on the unchanging word of Almighty God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we want to be biblically grounded. Third point if we want to be both biblically grounded and culturally relevant, we must be a people of convictional kindness. Convictional kindness. We must remember that those who disagree with us in the culture are not our enemies. This is really important. They're the mission field. We must have a kindness that goes with our convictions as well. And this is what I see as sorely lacking in the church also. In their excellent book, Good Faith, uh, Gabe Lyons and David Kinnaman uh, put together what it looks like to live as a Christian in these days. And one of their principles is this. Christians should have soft edges and firm centers. Christians should have soft edges and firm centers centers. So that means that we call sin, sin. But it also means that we love sinners just like we're commanded to, and just like Jesus modeled for us. Now, we may learn that someone has done something that is detestable in his or her past, but as followers of Jesus, we still love them. That doesn't mean we develop a hands-off attitude towards sin, especially if they're doing something that could injure themselves or someone else. But it does mean that we continue to love them even if we don't agree with their sin. In this way, we are following Christ's example. As Christians, we know God accepts us in spite of the fact that we regularly do things that he detests. That's what the table is all about that we'll approach later today. As we seek to follow his example, the example that is both full of grace and truth, we must remember to be a people of convictional kindness. But you can be as kind as you want to be, and Paul says you still may experience some persecution for your beliefs. That's just a reality that Christians all over the world, in Somalia and China, they know something that we just don't know. Because we haven't experienced that lately. But Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Meaning, Timothy, if you stand as a person of conviction against the trends of the times that you're in, people will not like that. Now, the same is true today. If you stand up and say, you think Christianity is exclusive? You'll, you'll be considered like socially awkward at best. And maybe intolerant. And not welcome in certain circles. I would encourage you to go ahead and say it anyway, though. But don't do it with your chest puffed out because you want to be right and you want to win an argument. Do it with tears in your eyes saying, to whom else can I go? He has the words of eternal life. These are his words, not mine. Brothers and sisters, if you stand up and insist... That human beings are made in the image of God and are worthy of protection from the moment of conception, whether they have Down syndrome or whether or not their life will be easy or difficult, you will be seen as backwards, shallow, maybe even regressive. I would encourage you to just go ahead and say that anyway, though. Not because you want to win some fight. It's because our God stands up for the most weak and the most vulnerable. And we love those who have Down syndrome because we look at them and say, they are made in the image of God. They are a co-heir with Christ. And you are looking at someone who is a future ruler of the universe, deserving of protection. Say it anyway. Not to win the culture war but because you believe this is what leads to human flourishing and what is best in our society. So may God find us faithful as people of convictional kindness and what one author calls faithful presence and having soft edges and firm centers. Finally, in chapter 4, Paul gives Timothy this charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom... Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. You know, sometimes the Bible's in season. For about a month after 9-11, the churches were full. The Bible was in season. But Paul says, I want you to do this whether it's in season or or out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here's what Paul is saying. Timothy, the way in which you will stand your ground on your convictions is not by remaining silent or quiet in your prayer closet. The way in which you will stand is this, by preaching the word. Whether it's in season or out of season, preach the word. Every day of my seminary career, I walked past this big, huge sign on the Dallas Seminary campus, facing inward toward the students, not outward towards those who were driving by. And reminding us that this is the motto of the seminary, Karuksan Tan preach the word. This is the charge that we've been given as followers of Christ, not just pastors, but all of us. My goal, and I know this is Pastor Bob's goal too, is to present the scriptures in such a way that's helpful and compelling to people who are in the audience and they learn something and that they're glad and want to come back and hear more from the word of God. I want people to walk in intrigued and go, wow, that guy just made the Bible seem relevant and helpful. I think I'll go back. For skeptics to come in and kind of doubt their their disbelief or for believers to come in and feel rooted in their faith or for people who don't own a Bible to go out and get a Bible or for people who need to dust off their Bible to do that and get back into the Word, that's my goal. That's my job each week. And Pastor Bob shares the same goal. By going through books of the Bible like we have with James this year or Ephesians before that or Acts before that or Jonah before that or Galatians before that or 1 Peter before that or Judges before... We do that so that we have to cover everything that God has to say. And there are parts in that book that are not easy to talk about from up front. I would rather not say them in the flesh. But yet this is a divine calling that God has given us to preach the Word. There are pressures, though. There are subtle pressures that I think people who have never served in this role don't really understand. There are pressures to avoid certain parts of the word of God or de-emphasize certain parts of the word of God because I know it's going to offend somebody in the audience. I know. And perhaps that someone might be a big giver and we don't want to lose that person. So there are these pressures. There's the pressure upon all of us in a culture like ours, which is not tender towards the message of Christianity, to change it or to edit it. But it is not ours to change. It is ours to pass down to the next generation. I want to stand before God one day and say like the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You don't need to hear from Pastor Dave and his opinion up here. You don't need to hear from some preacher each week. You don't need to hear from Bob. You need to hear from the word of God. You find out what he has to say to you in this book right here. And so our job is to preach the word. In that way, I find this to be an exciting time because being both biblically grounded and culturally relevant is something that gives us a unique opportunity to share with those around us, and not just the pastors, but all of us, to share the true biblical gospel, not the gospel of theological liberalism, not the word of faith gospel or the prosperity sort, but the biblical gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, which is the hope of the world. And here's the challenge for all of us, not just us, all of us in the body. The challenge is for every person in this audience to be able to look a skeptic or a post-Christian or a non-believer or a none-of-the-above person in the eye and say, here's what I believe. I know you don't have a religious affiliation, but I think you've been robbed. What do you mean? You've been robbed of any transcendent meaning. You've been robbed of your humanity. When your society tells you that you're nothing more than a highly evolved animal, that you came from nothing and you're going to nothing and nothing you really do is going to matter one day in the final analysis, you've been robbed of your birthright. You were made in the image of God. But with that tremendous right of being created in God's image comes a responsibility of knowing who God is and knowing what he calls you to in life. And you will look around forever trying to find fulfillment somewhere else. And you will never find it until you find that you were made in the image of God and you've been called by him to follow his will. That's our message. We are going to preach the word individually and corporately And if we want to be both biblically grounded and culturally relevant, we're going to need to do this last thing too. We're going to need to intentionally pass the torch down to the next generation. This is Paul's final letter. This is what he's doing. Notice, he's been building up an itinerant ministry underneath of him for years. Like him, we too must remember We need to pass down this truth to the next generation and raise up godly servant leaders who will take the torch away from us. Those might be folks who haven't yet believed in Christ even today, but we need to be thinking about them. We need to learn to let go of power to the faithful among the next generation, not scolding the next generation and the culture around us all the time. Our message is so much better than that. Russell Moore says it this way, the message of the kingdom is not, hey, you kids, get off our lawn. (laughs) The message of the kingdom is, make way for the coming of the Lord. So here's the choice. As we think about those who will come after us, we can either end our lives like Saul, King Saul, or like the Apostle Paul. You remember King Saul was throwing spears at the next generation of godly leaders? Well, we could choose to be like him, or we can choose to be here like Paul, here training up younger people, seeking to replace himself, building his life into others. Without them, we won't have a gospel to give to the next generation. So that's not gonna happen here. Here's what we're going to do instead. Let me just put up those four things one more time by way of reminder. We're going to live lives of Christian distinctiveness. We're going to preserve biblical authority. We're going to be a people of convictional kindness and we're going to be passing the torch to the next generation. And we're going to be a people who live not with fear, but with confidence and and hope. And so we're not just going to proclaim the message of the gospel. As you think about this message, think about two lines. One vertical which is our biblical grounding, and one horizontal, which is our cultural engagement. Now put those two lines together, and they are found in the perfect shape of the cross of Jesus Christ. And in order to reach this culture around us, that's exactly how we need to shape our lives. They need to be cruciform, cross-shaped, They need to be giving up our rights. They need to be humble. They need to be boasting in our weakness. They need to be lives of self-sacrifice, lives patterned after the model of the Lord Jesus himself. That's how we're going to do it. But friends, it would be easy not to Oh, man, it would be so easy not to live with Christian distinctiveness. It would be so easy just not to talk about the Bible or the hard things in there. It would be really easy not to live with any convictional kindness. And it would be a piece of cake just not to care about this next generation. But that's not who we're going to be. We want to be both biblically grounded and culturally relevant. Yes, we're living in tumultuous times. Yes, everything around us seems to be changing But brothers and sisters, we ought to be the last people to live in fear. We ought to be the last people wringing our hands in worry. We ought to be the last people who seek to isolate and cower in a corner. Our Savior rose from the grave, and he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Can we pray?